Pathways, the podcast where we have transformative conversations in education, exploring the intersection of education and social justice. I'm your host, Brittany Carey, and today I am joined by Alyssa Blask-Campbell to discuss her wonderful book she co-authored with Lawrence Double, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions. Alyssa is the CEO of Seed and Sew, has a master's degree in early childhood education, is a leading expert in emotional development, and travels the globe speaking on the topic. Her podcast, Voices of Your Village, is a gathering place for parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts creating a modern parenting village and reaches listeners in more than 100 countries. Seed and Sew serves people across the globe through speaking, consulting, online courses, and early childhood professional development programs, sharing tools and expertise to build emotional intelligence. She has been featured on expert publications such as the Washington Post, Burlington Free Press, and Family Education. Alyssa's show-up-as-you-are approach welcomes people in her village to support at all ages and stages, shame-free. She explains it's never too late or too early to start. Let's get into the interview. Welcome to Conscious Pathways. Good morning. Good morning. I'm excited to be here with you. So excited to have you with me. I guess it's morning on my end. I don't know. I'm in California, so I don't know if you're on my side of the country. It's morning, but not as aggressively morning. It's I'm okay. in Eastern time in Burlington, okay. Vermont, so 11. Okay. All right. All right. It's, still it's, counts. It's later morning. Yeah, still morning. <laughs> I find myself saying good morning at all times in the day. It could be like 7 o'clock at night. It's like, good morning. It's like, okay, I need to chill. <laughs> good morning. I'm so excited to have you joining me today. Um, I've been reading through this book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, and I can't wait to just start talking about it and diving into it. Um, But first, do you want to tell me a little bit about your background in early childhood education? What was your inspiration? What got you here? Yeah. Uh, Well, it's so interesting because my parents are both in education. My dad wasn't always. Uh, My mom was a stay-at-home mom and she ran basically like an unregulated home childcare. Just we were in a low-income community and she wanted to stay home with us. Mm -hmm. And that was how she was able to stay home. And Mm -hmm. I grew up in a town where like there weren't childcare centers. Like that's not Mm -hmm. a thing. Just like very rural America. And then when my little brother went to kindergarten, she went mm-hmm. back to college and got a degree and has been in education since. And I oh, remember wow. when I was in college, she said something about how I would be a really good teacher. And I was like, oh, I'm not just going to be a teacher, mom. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that felt like, oh, that's what my mom does. Like, that <laughs> is not for me. And, but I had always been like, Gosh, just like around kids, literally always. I mean, from her mm-hmm. running um, her program and I like would come home on a half day of school and there were kids in my house, right? Like it was just like always mm-hmm. around and I'm one of five kids and I babysat and nannied and like all the things. And then after college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I moved to New York City and I was a live-in nanny. And while I was doing that, um, a friend's aunt who I just like had built a relationship with was like you need to teach and I was like "Eh, I mean maybe I'll try it out for a little bit while I figure out what I want to do like still wasn't set on it and then I got a job teaching preschool in New York City and immediately fell in love and then started my master's program and have never looked back. Like it, she every. It turns out everyone in my life was right. Uh, it was what I was called to do, and it. I love learning how our brains and bodies work. I love learning how we learn, how our nervous system works, and how we process the world, and how we're so unique in that. Uh, and I feel like that was really like what drew me into education mm-hmm. was this idea of like, oh, I get to actually just learn about humans mm-hmm. and how humans work. And yeah, so I started, I was teaching and I've taught now everything from kindergarten down to infants. And I was a director of a childcare program. And mm-hmm. then I had the privilege of doing research in building emotional intelligence in kids. Mm-hmm. So I collaborated with my colleague, Lauren Staubel, we were both teaching together at the time she was in preschool pre-k and I was an infant toddler and we ended up creating the collaborative emotion processing method. We call it SEP for short. 
and we researched it across the U.S., and we have a book on it now, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions. Wow. I I love that. I love how just all of, I love asking that question because you just get to learn about how people got to education and everyone's journey is just so different. <laughs> but yeah. the underlying theme is all just the same is that you started working with kids and just the love for working with kids and the love for the education and the job and just everything about it. It, it just, it drew us in so much. <laughs> exactly. You just have that light bulb moment of like, oh yeah, no, this was the thing I was supposed to be doing all the time, all along. Yeah, totally. And there are times where I'm like, I couldn't have fallen in love with like banking or whatever. Right. Like, right. Like maybe a little less draining, a little more casual, yeah. but no, I just like fell in love with teaching. Yep. My first teaching job, I remember I was offered $30,000 and I was teaching in New York City, living in New York City. Mm-hmm. Which like you can't really live in the city. But at the time I was like 22, 23 Mm -hmm. maybe. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a thousand there. Like, this is incredible. I can like live on this and teach. And then was like paying rent and was like, oh, how do I live on this? Yes. The harsh (laughs) reality settles in. Yeah. Oh, I'm (laughs) always going to need another job. Yeah. That happened to be, I was living in LA and also you know, went into early childhood education. And I was like, wow, this is, I'm making like $17 an hour. That is the most money I've ever made. I am rich. Totally. And (laughs) in LA, that is below the poverty line. (laughs) Right. Totally. Totally. It's ridiculous. I mean, we could go off, I feel like on all that and a whole other episode, but yeah. Yes. (laughs) It is a whole problem. Yes. Surprises. Um, But so you talked about, the, the collaborative emotional processing that you researched. So what was the process of researching that? What kind of places were you able to go to research? Sure. So we did what's called action research, where mm-hmm. you're literally like researching it in action, right? Yes. Um, and so we partnered with Brandeis University to mm-hmm. uh, utilize their IRB, which is like their research governing body, mm-hmm. uh, to apply the whole like application process is a whole thing in and of itself like months long we were going through all that mm-hmm. um and then once we got approved for research we were able we we had a human who really uh, her name is angela garcia really came to us and was like we need to research this lauren she was mm-hmm. teaching with lauren at the time and lauren and i had been building out the method and Angela's like, we need to research this. And so she was like a driver for us. She was on our research team and she also speaks Spanish. And Mm -hmm. so it allowed us to do the research and have resources and all that jazz Mm -hmm. in English and in Spanish. And so Mm -hmm. we got to serve schools across the U.S. um, with different cultural backgrounds, et cetera. Wow. Then I know that was very just impactful not only just for, you know, the research for this book, but also, you know, the collaborative emotional processing, one, having that research back to it. And I'm sure it also, you probably came across some findings that you might not have been expecting to come across too. (laughs) It was so rad, like looking at Mm -hmm. the data and just seeing, hearing stories and anecdotes Mm -hmm. and how this was impacting teachers and families cross-culturally was Mm -hmm. really, really rad and just for me, it had me double down on like, oh yeah, we have to get this added to the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And that reminds me of something when I was reading the the book that I, there were a lot of things that I really was enjoyed and was really impressed by and so many things that I just like, oh, I, I got to write this down. I got to jot this down. <laughs> um, but there were a lot of, you know, that you brought in those cultural understandings into it as well, because you know, emotions across the board, one, they're not going to be the same for everyone. Not everyone's going to process the same way and not everyone's going to go through the same processes. But also culturally, it's going to change depending on what language you speak at home or how emotions are viewed at home. And so really leading with that kind of curiosity instead of that judgment really helps us to build those foundation blocks to build a more kind of social, emotional, emotional, intelligent world (laughs) yeah exactly and I think helps us check our biases because we're going to come to the table with our own Mm -hmm. construct around emotions Mm -hmm. and what was allowed in our childhood or in our culture and what wasn't and that's our only lens right that we come to the table with and when we can acknowledge like oh that's our bias Mm -hmm. that's a 
bias that's coming to the table. That's not yeah. the only experience that people have with emotions and that cross-culturally we're going to see different emotions being allowed or not allowed, mm -hmm. um, responded to differently. Yeah. Some languages have so many different words for emotions that in English we have mm -hmm. one word for, right? So yes. really being able to recognize that when we're talking about emotions, you can't leave culture out of it. Yes, absolutely. It's it's such an integral part. Uh, when I do my trainings, I do trainings on, you know, cultural relevancy and sustaining practices. And that's something I always tell us, like, when we go anywhere, we don't just shed our culture and just leave it behind. We bring it with us everywhere we go. We bring it into the classroom. We bring it into our workspace. Everywhere we go, our culture is going to follow us. So we, we're doing ourselves and we're doing our classroom a complete disservice when we don't incorporate that, when we aren't actively engaging with that. And again, leading with that curiosity, it's so important and so integral. Um, and so I love just the idea of incorporating that into that emotional you know, intelligence landscape and you know, having that be a part of it because it is <laughs> it's a very it's big huge. part of it. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think part of that work too is even recognizing what is cultural for us because mm -hmm. when we grow up with something it just feels like what is it just feels like mm -hmm. the truth and it just feels like the way things are done and when we don't take the time to build awareness self-awareness and dive mm -hmm. into our biases and our social programming it then just feels like the only truth yeah. and I think the idea of like we're bringing our culture into everything that we do is so true and I don't think folks always know like what is my culture like what is it that mm -hmm. I'm bringing to this and how does it show up and for me one of those things that was huge in my family growing up was respect but it was mm -hmm. often like it wasn't just respect it also included obedience was a part of respect mm -hmm. right and that there were certain folks that had power over me mm -hmm. and I was meant to respect them and they were meant to have the power. And that was like the culture that I grew up in. And it doesn't, without like checking that, I think it's hard to recognize like, Oh, that was your culture, Alyssa. That's not mm -hmm. just what is. Yes. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense because again, when you're, when you're growing up, you only really have that one lens. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so it, it makes sense. And we know, especially with young children, they really have a hard time even stepping out of that and seeing other people's lenses, right? And so you grow up and you really only have your perspective. You only have the things that you know. And unless we start getting curious about that, and that's, again, a lot of the trainings that I do as well, they start with the adult in the room. They start with yeah. the person. Like, let's get in touch with who you are. <laughs> Right? Because I can't expect you to go do these really big, hard things in the classroom if you don't know who you are, if you don't know where your culture is coming from, if you don't know where your biases are coming from. And those all come from just our one perspective. But sometimes our, our perspective isn't like, you know, it's, it's your reality. <laughs> it yes. might not be someone else's reality. <laughs> Right. Right. And my friend, Dr. Lynetta Willis calls these legacy blessings and legacy burdens, mm -hmm. right. That we're bringing from our childhood. And, and some of them are blessings and we want to pass them on. And some of them have been burdens for us and we don't want to mm -hmm. pass them on. And until we have that awareness of what we're even bringing, mm -hmm. we can't then choose what are we going to pass on versus not. Mm -hmm. And instead our triggers just become our truth, right. That yes. the, well, we're triggered by manipulation or it feels like this child's being so manipulative mm. or defiant. And mm. that just feels true in the moment. Yes. It doesn't feel like a trigger. It just feels true. Yes. And without that awareness for ourselves, it's really hard to separate it out and say, oh, that feels true because of my childhood. I'm triggered because this is something that in my childhood would not have been allowed or explored. Mm -hmm. No one sought out like what is the need that's driving Alyssa's behavior mm -hmm. it just on the surface was defiant or manipulative mm -hmm. and so it makes sense to have a reaction to that as an adult if yeah. you didn't experience anyone else diving in and saying hmm I wonder what's going on for you here if it was yep. just that that behavior was defiant mm -hmm. or manipulative uh, or that you were being 
defiant, mm-hmm. manipulative, right? Um, and there are so many other triggers, but those are two that for me come up in the moment yes. uh, because of my childhood. Yes, yes. And I I remember thinking back, I always say, you know, we, we can only do better when we know better, right? And so, you know, I, I think about those first early years when I was teaching, I definitely had some of those those same thoughts you were talking about of, oh, this child is they're crying because they're trying to manipulate me or, you know, their behavior is being defined or they're being disobedient they're being disrespectful. And mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying. It wasn't until I started doing my own internal work of, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> I know that developmentally this child, one probably does not have the skills to fully manipulate a fully grown adult. <laughs> and two, I don't think that that's what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, people call attention seeking behaviors like, oh, like don't give in to their attention seeking behaviors where it's like, well, but they're they're out there communicating a need, right? Yeah. And so I'm doing them a disservice by ignoring that need. And it wasn't until I started working on my own kind of things, my own childhood, like, oh yeah, when I was a child, I was supposed to like kind of just, you know, be seen but not heard. Correct. <laughs> you know? Not have needs. Not have needs and all yeah. of that. And I I could feel myself like just the the anger bubbling up when there was just a child who I viewed as needy or oh, a child who I still feel it. Yes. I still feel it. It takes, I have to step back. Like, okay. Breathe. Yeah. Right. I have skills for it now, but that yes. initial reaction mm-hmm. is still very real. The, the skill to hone is that finding that pause between the initial reaction and then the response, but the initial reaction is still real. And those stay with us. These are parts of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And we know now that behavior is a communication of a need, right? We look mm-hmm. at this, we break it down in the book of sensory needs or emotional needs. That sensory need being like, I'm dysregulated or my um, nervous system's overstimulated. I need movement. I need food. I need sleep. And there's a sensory need there. And the other is um, emotional needs. And these are like a need for connection, attention, Mm -hmm. belonging, inclusivity. And those are often more triggering for us because a lot of us didn't grow up in a culture where we were allowed to have those needs, where those needs were valid. Mm -hmm. And they were actually looked at as inconvenient and needy and high Mm -hmm. maintenance and dramatic. And there were negative labels put on having those needs. And so we've learned that we aren't supposed to have those needs mm-hmm. and that we're failing if we do. And so when kids now have those needs, it's triggering mm-hmm. for us. It does feel needy and high maintenance and dramatic. Mm-hmm. And listen, it's not only a disservice to the kids to not meet those needs, mm-hmm. it's a disservice to ourselves. And it frankly will continue to make your life harder because they're going to keep just not consciously, subconsciously from a primal perspective, keep, they're going to keep trying to meet those needs. And so if they have a need to feel connected or to belong or to feel included, and we're just ignoring those needs because we think if we ignore this quote negative behavior, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen is a new behavior is going to surface still trying to meet that need. Yeah. I recently, my two and a half year old was poking me in the hand with a fork at breakfast. Mm. And I realized like, oh, this is a time where like, I'm usually sitting next to him. My husband's like getting stuff ready for us mm-hmm. to like head out the door, lunches, all that jazz um, to get ready for work and childcare. And I was chatting with my husband and Sage, my little guy, was poking me in the hand with a fork. And I was like, buddy, please stop poking me. please!" And just like on repeat, I'm just like responding to this behavior. And then finally, I was like, all right, that's not working, right? It's not stopping. And Mm -hmm. when I was able to instead, when when I was able to instead turn and say, bud, I'm wondering if you want my attention. Are you feeling left out because I'm talking to daddy? And he was like, "Mm mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I was talking to daddy and you weren't included in that conversation. Instead of poking me in the hand with the fork, Mm -hmm. you can say, mama, what are you talking about? Or mama, I feel left out. Mm -hmm. And so he started saying, mama, what are you talking about? And now that's Mm -hmm. like on repeat, we were actually just at my parents' house and my mom was like, what is it? Sage keeps saying, Grammy, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, (laughs) it's better than being poked in the hand with a fork. Uh, (laughs) But what he's saying is, I feel left out and I want to feel included. And we were able to give him a replacement behavior for it. 
but only because I was able to see the need beneath the behavior. And that is the part that's so challenging for us as the adults. And it's crucial to hone that skill so that we can then meet that need and give a replacement behavior. Yes, 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 yes. All of that. It reminds me of times in the classroom when you know, I was actively kind of doing my own internal work and healing my own inner child and all of those things (laughs) that go with it. And I I had this one child in my classroom and he was just, he was so sweet, but his mom traveled a lot for work. And I can always tell when mom traveled for work because he just had a hard time emotionally. And I think there was one time when she traveled and it was just a little bit longer than it would normally be. It would normally be a couple of days. I think she was gone for like maybe like a couple of weeks at this point. And so, you know, he, he was, he was doing okay, but there's, there's a breaking point, right? Totally. <laughs> you know, emotionally. And, you know, when we start getting, you know, when they're going through these kind of emotional things, you know, they kind of feel like their life is out of control. And so they're trying to take control back in whatever small way possible. And so his small way of taking control back was like, I'm not going to go to the bathroom when you want me to. Mm, yeah. What <laughs> can know? I control? What can I control? And I'm going to control this one thing. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in the classroom, you have a whole group of kids and it's like, okay, well, I can't just leave you outside. (laughs) You know, we all got to go together. Um, And, you know, there was one time and we had just been struggling with this behavior, struggling with this behavior, struggling with this behavior. And it finally kind of clicked for me of, oh, okay, you're not being defiant to just get on my nerves. Yeah. It is also getting on my nerves, but that's not your goal. That's not your goal. <laughs> right. Well, we and that's that. the like Brene Brown, her like two things are true. Yes. And I feel like that comes in here of like two things can be true. The behavior yes. can be manipulative or defiant mm-hmm. and it can also not be their goal. It can just be right. their body trying to figure out how to meet this need. Mm-hmm. But the behavior on the surface can appear that way and we can yeah. experience it that way. Exactly, exactly. And so when I finally realized that, I was like, okay, what could be going on right now? And I realized, you know what? His mom hasn't picked up in a couple of weeks at this point. So he's probably just really missing his mom. <laughs> and so I just took his hand, I looked at him and you know, we regulated and we got to a point of, it seems like you're really missing your mom right now. And he just breaks down and he's just like, yeah, I miss my mom. And, you know, I then could, you know, offer a different behavior once we were regulated and we were just in a different state of mind of when you have these really big feelings, like that's okay. If you need a hug, you can just ask for a hug. And, you know, after that moment, you know, we'd be on the playground. He'd just come up to me. He's like, I need a hug. And I'd give him a big, huge squeeze. And then he would go back and play with his friends. But that's just what he needed in that moment. And again, we regulated and we got to a point of like, okay, well, if that's what you need, I would love to meet that need. Here's what you can ask for, and that that need can be met all day long. <laughs> we had lots totally. of all day. <laughs> well, and what's key there is like we have to have the self awareness to even know what's my need, mm-hmm. and I think this is something that us as adults often lack too. Of like, yeah. we are asserting control with something when, mm-hmm. say, like, just having this conversation with one of our C team members where she was getting ready to go on a trip and she was like, everything feels overwhelming, right? I'm trying to like pack for the, mm-hmm. she has kids and trying to pack for the family and trying to get all these things done, trying to wrap up things from work and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, and then I found myself just like cleaning my bathroom. And it was like, that's not even on the list, right? And like, yeah. I feel like I'm so strapped for time that I'm cleaning my bathroom. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. And I was like, oh, that makes sense to me because when everything else feels out of control, you're looking for something you can control, something mm-hmm. you can check off that list, even if it's actually adding to your list and it's taking time yeah. away from what could be helpful. <laughs> but the awareness first of like, I'm overwhelmed with all of this mm-hmm. right now. My body feels overwhelmed. I feel like I'm not organized enough to leave. I feel like mm-hmm. I don't have enough support to get out of the house. Like the awareness mm-hmm. of what's happening, of what those needs are is really hard. So for that child, it's not that there's this manipulative behavior that he's consciously like, I have this need and I know what it is mm-hmm. and I'm still going to choose this other behavior. It's that they don't know what the need is, right? And so until we can say I'm wondering if you're missing your mom. Sometimes when you feel this inside, when your chest feels tight, 
and you feel like you might want to cry or maybe we see it come out in fight mode where like you feel really angry and frustrated and your shoulders go up to your ears and you don't want to play with anybody and you want to say no to everything. Sometimes that means inside we're feeling sad and disappointed Mm -hmm. and you might be missing your mom, but helping him connect. That's the, what we call interception, Mm -hmm. which is one of the sensory systems of like, what does it feel like inside when you're experiencing these feelings? Because we often want kids to regulate. We want them to calm their nervous system and then access self-control where they can say, I need a hug, right. To Mm -hmm. be able to access that language and access that tone and behavior, et cetera requires that awareness first of what does it feel like inside and then where do I go with that yes that is such an important aspect of it and I know even as adults we sometimes struggle with that I know I I still struggle same I won't even notice for the longest time that I'm like clenching my jaw like the tension is there and I'm like ooh, wait I feel that what's going on let's take a pause (laughs) yeah I'm feeling tense why am I feeling so tense and it just takes a lot of time and practice and work even as adults to get through this so of course it takes time for for children to also practice this and to learn these things and it could feel really awkward at first to kind of verbalize like oh I feel like I feel it in my shoulders I feel it in this Mm -hmm. it could feel really awkward (laughs) at first but it is such a good practice to start getting more in tune, like you said, that introspection of getting more in tune of what it actually feels like, right? And then starting to ask some of those questions and being curious. And one thing I also really loved as I was reading through the book is there's a lot of, of non-judgment, right? We're not yeah. trying to judge the feeling, right? Emotions are just, it's a part of life. There, there's nothing good or bad about emoting. <laughs> that's right. It is a part of being a human being. And that's the beauty of being a human being is that we get to experience a very wide range of emotions. So being able to look at that in a way of non-judgment of, okay, I'm feeling this physically or I'm feeling this this way. Like, okay, what do I need in this moment? How can I regulate in this moment? And then kind of moving forward. But that introspection is such a, such an important aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think too there in the like, when we are looking at the non-judgment, not just the feelings part of like, mm-hmm. all feelings are welcome. That makes me think of Mr. Rogers, like all feelings are welcome <laughs> yes. and manageable, um, which obviously, yes, I love. And that message is all throughout the book. But also the non-judgment when it comes to our initial reaction that like there have been times where a two-year-old has slapped me across the face. And in that moment, I want to fight a two-year-old, right? And like, that sounds nuts to say out loud, but in the, in reality, like my nervous system is designed to want to fight somebody that hits Mm -hmm. me. And it's again, that initial reaction, finding that pause Mm -hmm. after that initial reaction is I think our greatest work as adults so Mm. that we can respond with intention, but allowing ourselves to experience the initial reaction without shame or judgment that Mm. when something happens and I'm like, Oh, I'm annoyed with this child right now, or this behavior Mm -hmm. or um, whatever like narrative we assign to it, that we're allowing that to be true that I've never Mm -hmm. left a day as a parent or a teacher. And I was like, well, they did nothing that felt annoying or nothing that felt inconvenient, right? Like we don't usually build in time. They're not like, hey, uh, excuse me, do you have a spare 10 minutes for me to have a hard time right now? Like, (laughs) can you fit that into your calendar? That's not how those things work, right? And so they just pop up and it feels inconvenient and it can feel annoying and frustrating when it's like, I'm trying to get dinner ready or I'm trying to get all these kids ready for lunch or get out the door. And to go to the playground or we're trying to do diapers, whatever it is. And you're like, this feels inconvenient and annoying to have to deal with Mm -hmm. and allowing that to be true. And that experience for ourselves to be true without shame or judgment. What you do next is what matters. How you respond is what matters. But that initial reaction, Mm -hmm. those narratives, what's popping up for you, it makes sense. It does. It does. It makes so much sense our fight or flight is also being activated and you know we're we're experiencing it like you said no one wants to be hit in the face right it's a part of you know when you're working with young people and they have big emotions and they're going to react in a way that 
makes sense to them to react, right? And as adults, we have hopefully gained up a lot more kind of resilience and resistance to not be able to react in that way when we experience big emotions. But, you know, these young people have only really been on the planet for like two or three years at this point. Right. Um, and so really taking that. And that's another thing that was in this book is these developmentally appropriate practices that, that we know very well in early childhood um, is just looking at making sure that our curriculum or our expectations are developmentally appropriate for the child that we have in our room right now, right? And so taking that approach to it and looking at our expectations, am I expecting this three-year-old to have a complete control over their emotions? Is that a, is that a reasonable expectation that I have on them? And they don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex until they're in their mid twenties. So best of luck if that's, right. <laughs> if that's your goal. I don't care if you're a high school teacher and you have, yeah. if you're anywhere on this spectrum. Mm-hmm. It, here's the thing: like, we can have all the skills in the world. We can mm-hmm. have a whole toolbox of yep. skills, and no one on the planet has access to those skills all the time. That we are meant to cycle in and out of regulation and dysregulation that also when we're expecting people, this is part of the like perfectionism and the culture Mm -hmm. of like independence and you're not supposed to ask for help and whatever, all feeds from this place of once you have a skill, you need to always have access to that, right? Like right now, I'm seven billion weeks pregnant. I've got two and a half year old. I'm on a book tour. I'm running a business Mm -hmm. and almost every night. I ask my husband to please carry me to bed and brush my teeth because I'm like, I'm so spent and tired. Do I know how to do those things? Totally. Do I always have the capacity for it? No. No. And so for our kids, if what we're expecting is self-control all the time, man, Mm -hmm. I hope we're not expecting it from ourselves or anyone else around us. We are all going to be in times throughout the day where we don't have access to self-control. When Mm -hmm. I've had a long day, my husband comes home from work and I'm like sarcastic and snippy and rude. It's not Mm -hmm. because I'm like, this is going to be the best way to communicate, right? This is going to be most productive. No, it's because I'm dysregulated and I'm not accessing self-control in those moments. And that's okay. We get to have like rupture and repair. We get to be disconnected and reconnected. But I think so often we hold kids to this standard of like, oh, I know that you have this skill and now you need to be able to elicit that skill at Mm -hmm. any given moment. Yes. Yes. It's bonkers. It's bonkers. Yes. When you really think about it, you're like, well, wait a minute, because I don't have the capacity to do all those things at all times. Like I get dysregulated. And even when I'm dysregulated and I know that I have a whole toolbox of things that I can do when I get dysregulated, but sometimes you're just at that level of dysregulation where the tools aren't tooling. (laughs) <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, just, I need to just exist in space for a minute. <laughs> right. Just hold on. It's real. It's real. It's it's very, very real. And, you know, I love that the aspect of like that sensory needs are really important and really prominent in this book as well. Because, you know, one, there's real there's a lot of real life examples, lots of things that any person who works with children or any person who has children in their lives has, has seen a child, yeah. seen a child, like <laughs> totally. you've been through, experienced or heard of the classic. <laughs> you have a child who is just having a full blown breakdown in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you, when you take back your own kind of perspective and lens and kind of broaden that the grocery store could be a really overwhelming experience. There's totally a lot of things around you that you're not supposed to touch, but you really want to touch. (laughs) For sure. And there's a lot of really long, narrow aisles that would look really fun to run down. Right. And just overstimulating for a lot of kids. The visual stimulation, it can be loud in there. Mm -hmm. Like there's a part of them that's wondering what are the rules? What are the expectations? What are the boundaries? And Mm -hmm. I've never set a boundary for a kid. And they were like, great, I can't wait to follow it. Thanks for keeping me safe. Right? Like, Mm -hmm. it is their job to say like, okay, when we were coming into this grocery store, mom said that we were not going to buy anything extra off of our list. Here's what we Mm -hmm. were going to get. And now I'm wondering if that's still true once we're in there. Is it still true if I am having a hard time? Is it still true if I am feeling mad? Like, they're not mm-hmm. consciously asking these questions, but subconsciously yeah. their body saying, it. is this still true? 
Yeah. We see it all the time of like, like with your little guy whose mom was traveling for work, that he's probably in that time pushing boundaries. He doesn't usually push Mm -hmm. to say, is this still true when mom's away? Or at home, we might see like, oh, grandparents are visiting. Is this still the rule that I can't Mm -hmm. jump off the couch onto the coffee table when grandparents are here? Like, what are the rules at any given time? And it's their job to ask that. And when we have that expectation that Mm -hmm. it's their job to ask that, it becomes easier for us to respond with intention because we're not caught off guard all the time. Exactly. Exactly. So just our ability to, again, be in tune and be aware really impacts our ability just to be intentional in the way that we respond and also being intentional about how we feel the emotions and the things bubbling up, right? Because when you're at the grocery store and your kid's having a hard time and you feel like everyone's staring at you and you feel like everyone's judging you or everyone thinks, oh, I must be a bad parent or blah, 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 blah. When in actuality, no one's really paying that much attention. <laughs> no, anyone that's looking at you is like, gosh, I've been there and I know how hard it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every time I've seen it, I'm like, I feel you. Yeah. Kids having a hard time. I feel for you. And so being able to then regulate ourselves in those moments just enough so that we can regulate that situation. Yeah. And it's such a hard skill to do because in that moment, you just want to be like, just stop. <laughs> like, just pay Please attention. Please stop just... making my life inconvenient. Yeah. Like, and then acknowledging that, like, you might be feeling embarrassed. You might be feeling angry. You might be, feel- you might be now feeling dysregulated, right? yeah and those are all natural and okay ways to feel about the situation that is very stressful and a little embarrassing and hard especially if you grew up in a culture where public tantrums were not Mm. allowed where you were not allowed to have hard feelings outside of the home and if that's the case then when your kid has a hard feeling outside the home it's going to be triggering yeah and it doesn't mean you're failing that but it will be triggering and so as you notice those triggers and you can build that awareness it allows you to find that pause so that you can regulate and respond with intention we got to dive so much into how to do that and what it looks like in practice in the book yes which i again i really love i love that there are real life examples either in the classroom or outside of the classroom whether it's in your home or all of that i love that there's real life examples it has a lot of really deep information in the book but it doesn't read like a textbook yeah great <laughs> which great. is important <laughs> yes. i know i was a, i was a weird teenager and i would read textbooks for fun but most yeah, people don't it. do that well i learned best through stories right so like yeah. for me it made sense for us to write it that way mm-hmm. and like we're telling stories to be able to elicit these different reactions, Mm -hmm. responses, behaviors to be able to have a depiction of what does this look like in practice? And for me, I definitely wasn't a kid who grew up reading textbooks. In fact, I like spark notes my whole way through life. And so (laughs) I am the opposite in that, like, Mm -hmm. if we would have written a textbook and you handed it to me, I would have been like, great, I'm going to set this on the shelf and never read it. I needed something that felt accessible. That's how I Mm -hmm. learn is through stories and accessible information. Um, my queen for this is Brene Brown. I think she does such a beautiful Mm -hmm. job of taking data and nerdiness and academia and breaking it down into tangible, actionable stories and ways to like understand and comprehend the information. Mm -hmm. And she's always for a long time been my queen here. Yeah. And, uh, so we really like tried to channel like what does it look like to do that to take academia and data because we researched the set method it is that actually the first manuscript we wrote ever was really te- like kind of like a textbook it was really mm. nerdy and our agent was like this is great mm-hmm. and it needs to be yeah. more accessible yes, and, and so we <laughs> so we wrote the proposal with her and denertified a lot of it and then we got the deal with Harper Collins and the editor was like, this is great. We love it. We need it a little more accessible. And I was like, oh man, yes. this is already the more accessible version. Uh, but it was so good for us. And for me, I think because it, it helped make this book available then for more humans, right? Mm-hmm. Accessible for more humans uh, to be able to consume and understand and ultimately put it into practice. Yeah. Yes. And, and I, I felt that throughout the book, I definitely felt that it 
felt really relatable there were moments where i'm like yeah i've been there (laughs) (laughs) or it's just like yeah like i know i've had that happen in the classroom or all these different things and these different stories and i knew that i could relate to it which just you know made the information kind of sink in that much more Mm -hmm. and that much better it was just really great and another aspect is i think it really humanized children i think sometimes Mm. we we forget to humanize children in the moment. There's a lot of really big emotions and there's a lot of go, 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 go. And there's a lot of there's schedules and there's, you got to go to to daycare or preschool and school and all these different things. We're constantly moving when there's, you know, children involved that we forget to humanize their experience. Again, they haven't really been on this planet for very long. (laughs) Yeah. We hold them to different standards than we hold ourselves a lot of the time. And just expect, you know, I think of myself even like we joke that if it's not on my calendar, it does not exist. I will not show up for it. And it's how I keep track of information, right? Like calendars, Mm -hmm. I use a clock to know like, what time is it now? When's my next thing happening? Mm -hmm. Alarm clocks, to-do lists. We have Mm -hmm. a meal plan on our fridge where my husband and I know like, what groceries do we need to get? What's for dinner tonight? We use all these things to help us move through the day. And so often with kids, we're like, just remember it follow along and remember it and it isn't fair (laughs) they can't read the clock when they're really young and so what tools are we giving them and I know as a parent and as a teacher there have been so many times where I've said okay guys we're gonna clean up in five minutes Mm -hmm. or whatever we're gonna head out the door in two minutes and sometimes five minutes is legit five minutes sometimes it's one minute sometimes it's 20 right like sometimes they get caught up in a task and now I'm like oh shoot um, I had said five minutes and whatever the kid doesn't know. And like, the thing is when we can give them these tools that we use ourselves mm-hmm. and we can give them calendars and we can give them yes. visual timers and things yes. like that to communicate what's happening in the world around them. Mm-hmm. It helps their nervous system regulate. It helps them know what it to does. expect. And it's a gift we give ourselves that we don't often give kids. Oh, 100%. I think I had you know, with every classroom, you just, there's a different behavior that just seems to <laughs> arise and it's just a collective behavior. And like, okay. This is the behavior in this classroom. Cool. Yeah. Let's work with it. <laughs> and with all two-year-old classrooms, transitions are just very difficult. Transitions mm-hmm. are, they're hard for any child, but two-year-olds, they really struggle with this concept of transitioning from activities and transitioning yeah. from classroom to out, all the different things. And so I think having a, just a visual, one, we had a visual calendar, kind of like, this is what our day looks like. And two, we had a visual uh, timer, so it had little colors yeah. on it. So green means go, and then it would turn 11 when it was like, or it would turn yellow when it was like, oh, you have one more minute. And then red yeah. was like, okay, it's time. Like, it's all done. And that really did help with the transitions. It helps with the regulation. And also it helps with that that social interaction because, you know, the kids will be looking at the timer. I'm like, no, it's, it's green. Just go play. You don't have to stare at the timer. <laughs> this is not the game. Totally. They would be staring at it like, okay, it's going to turn yellow. And then we're all going <laughs> to clean up. <laughs> They're all trying to hold each other accountable. Like, do you see it's yellow? <laughs> so, well, they want to know when it's coming, right? Like my yes. two-year-old will still do this. I'll say, all right, buddy, I can set a timer. And then he's like, can I hold it? And we just will use, we have like one on our fridge, but if we're out and about, I'll just use it on my phone and he can see it counting down. Mm-hmm. And then he'll spend that next like 30 seconds yeah. just looking at the thing. I'm like, what? Are, this is how you want to spend your time? Fine. Right. Uh, <laughs> but it, for him, it's like, okay, I need to know when it's coming. Yeah. And this is how I know when something's coming next in the same way yes. that we use a clock. Yes. Yes. And yeah. I, I know that I had a, a very chaotic childhood. There were lots of change, lots of things that was happening. And so I even know as an adult, I do better when I know what to expect. When I yeah, know what my do. schedule looks like. When I, when I know and I have yeah. concrete ideas. I'm cool. I'm called cool collected. I'm a cool cucumber. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm cool as a cucumber in those instances, but I'm cooler. I'm cooler. <laughs> you know, when I don't know, then I'm just like, okay, I'm an angry cucumber. Like, what is happening, right? Well, and that's literally primal. Like, our nervous mm-hmm. system, when it doesn't know what to expect, it always has to be on alert. It yeah. has to be looking out to say, like, what's happening next? Who's coming mm-hmm. next? Who's picking me up? When are we leaving? What should I know about this? Am I safe here? Is really what it's always asking. Am I safe here? Mm. And when you have expectations that are known, when you know what's coming next, when you have really clear boundaries, you know what yeah. to expect from the humans around you, when there's consistency in mm-hmm. your routine, every time we work with childcare programs and they start off like, oh, we have these behaviors, et cetera. I'm like, tell me about your routines. 
And if they don't have consistency in their routines, that is where we're starting. That you, mm-hmm. if you don't have consistency in your routines, then you got kids who are cons- constantly asking, am I safe? What's mm-hmm. coming next? And as a baseline, they're going to be dysregulated. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes sense, right? Like it, it makes so much sense. But when we aren't actively humanizing children, yeah. it can be so easy for us to overlook it of, oh, I said five minutes and now the five minutes are done. Like, go put it away. We're done. No more of that. And that can be so hard. Even as an adult, it would be really hard for someone to just, like, if I'm using my coloring book and I'm living my best life and then someone's just like, okay, like, you're done. Put it away. We're going to our next task now. And it's like, correct. Oh, hold on. (laughs) I wasn't done. Um, Yeah. But this idea of humanizing children and really coming into their humanity and just recognizing that yeah, their their emotions are are valid, even if we don't fully understand them. They are totally. still valid, right? The whole the breakdown over getting the blue cup instead of the red cup, mm-hmm. while it may not matter to me what cup you use, to them, they have so little autonomy in what they get to choose and do. And you not giving them this choice, that that was a straw. <laughs> like that was and the thing. Frankly, every morning I get to pick my coffee cup. Yeah. And I have yeah. favorites. I don't want Zach's, yeah. I don't want my husband's coffee cup. I want my coffee cup. Yeah. And I have favorites. I like how it feels in my hand. I like the design mm-hmm. of it. Like I have favorites and that's okay. I think that yeah. really comes down to that like power over culture that so many of us mm-hmm. grew up in where it, it, this just came up yesterday with my two-year-old. We were, I had said like, all right, buddy, in a couple of minutes, we're going to clean these up and we're going to go downstairs. He was playing with my necklaces mm-hmm. and I, he was, the timer beeped. He loves the timer timer beeped and I was like all right it's time to head downstairs and he goes but mama I wasn't finished I'm trying to hook this one and then I want to go and I could at that moment decide like no we just have to do this arbitrarily on my timeline where we have to leave right now or I can slow down and say sure bud we can be in a collaborative relationship here right where like yeah, why don't you finish hooking that one and then we can go downstairs. And he said, thanks, mama. And like, that was it. But we have this relationship built of like, I don't need to have power and control over you simply Mm -hmm. to have power and control over you. I will set and hold boundaries when they need to be held, especially around safety and health. And to Mm -hmm. let you know that like, you don't have to call the shots as a kid, that that's my job and I'll take care of that and I'll keep you safe. And also there are some times where we're going to set boundaries and they're pretty arbitrary and we can slow down and just be in relationship with these kids. Yes. It it often doesn't take that much extra time and you build that connection and that relationship, which is so integral and so important in those moments. And it's just beautiful. Um, So, you know, speaking about these really amazing topics that we all just talked about, um, how do you reimagine the landscape of education? I hope to see more of a focus and understanding and prep and support, I guess, for teachers to know what's happening in the nervous system, to understand the eight sensory systems and recognize there's no one size fits all, that Mm -hmm. how our brains and bodies filter information in the world is unique to all of us. And that also means that then what my nervous system craves for regulation might be something that the next person is sensitive to and drains their nervous system. Mm -hmm. That maybe like, for instance, for myself, I love touch. I love a hug. I love having a hand on me. Like I could have a massage for four days and I'm like, I want more. My Mm -hmm. child is drained by touch. It's one of his sensitivities. And so if I give him what I need in a hard moment when he's having a hard time, it actually further dysregulates him. And so when we stop seeing education as this one size fits all and start to incorporate the nervous system into it, I think it'll be a game changer for all learning because it'll start from a place of self-awareness and regulation, which Mm. then allows us to access self-control for our words, our behavior, our language, our ability to take in whatever content is being provided. Mm. I I agree. And I love that. I know when I started learning more about, you know, the importance of sensory play and sensory needs and your nervous system, the more I started just to understand my students. And also the more I started to just understand myself, yeah. understand 
what kind of experiences make me feel the most overwhelmed or the most dysregulated and how can I support myself in those things? Yeah. Um, that has helped me just to really even just center my life. I know that I get really stressed out when I go to the grocery store. Mm. So you know what? I just order the groceries. And that is one less thing <laughs> totally. that just regulates me in my entire day. And so I just do that. And so and for knowing... somebody else that might be calming. Yeah. Right? Like going to the grocery yeah. store can be calm. And that's what I mean here is that like the ability to differentiate and say like also what's in your sensory bin is not going to yeah. work for everybody. And that's okay. It doesn't always have mm -hmm. to, but recognizing that a sensory bin of tactile stuff is not enough when we're talking about yeah. the sensory systems. We have eight sensory systems. We dive into them mm -hmm. in the book and really understanding those are going to help folks understand how kids are processing the entire day, the classroom, yes. all of it. And then it lets you know, like what coping strategies will work for this kid versus that kid, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And allowing ourselves to be in the space of curiosity as we get to know kids rather than trying mm -hmm. to do a one size fits all approach. Yes. Yes. I, I couldn't agree with that more. That is something I'm constantly ad advocating for. I call it kind of the McDonaldization in education. You can go to McDonald's anywhere, you know, here, Texas, the Wyoming, and sure. you can pretty much be assured you're going to get the same things because they have the formula down pat. You do this, you do this, you get this. Yeah, but, delicious. Right? But in <laughs> education, it, we're not burgers. <laughs> we're not. We're all different. And so what's going to work, you can't just do the same exact formula because it's not going to work for every single person. Totally. So sometimes we just have to pay attention to okay, what are your needs and how can I best make sure that your needs are being met so that you can have, so that you can have an experience in this classroom that is conducive to your learning. Yeah, right? it's so part of equity. Can, it's part of equity and it's hard and it's a little tricky, but at the same time, I always think of it like as educators, we just get to be little detectives and yep. we just get to figure out, it's kind of like just figure out a puzzle. Yeah. And that's fun. That's you, you enter it with curiosity and you just ask questions and, it can be really fun if you allow it to be fun. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing this important work and spreading these messages. I think it's so key and I'm excited to have been able to be in conversation with you. If folks are interested, the book is Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, um, available wherever books are sold. And we also have a pretty active Instagram at seed.and.so, S-E-W. I like to hang out over there if people want to connect okay. any further. And we have a professional development program for early childhood educators. So mm -hmm. it is a series of workshops, but it also includes ongoing virtual coaching support for free, mm -hmm. all available via an app so that you don't just take a workshop and you go back into the classroom. And you're like, wait, now I have questions. You can reach out at any point, and we have experts in the field of early ed, psychologists, occupational therapists, speech mm -hmm. pathologists, et cetera, there to support early childhood educators in implementing this work, not just learning about it in a workshop. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll link all of that in our show notes as well. So if people are Great. curious where to find you or the book or just learn more about what you do, um, it'll all be linked there. And Thank you so much, Alyssa, for joining me today. This was such a great conversation and I just can't wait to share it out there with the world. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Of course. Thank you for listening to the Conscious Pathways podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and follow Conscious Pathways so you never miss a new episode. Please leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. It really does help our show to grow and reach more people. You can also follow Conscious Pathways on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. And I'll be back next week for more transformative conversations in education. Thank you for listening. Bye!